every once in a while, history is forever altered and changed because of an event or a thing. And throughout the course of, of mankind's story, there have been moments in history where a letter was sent that changed the course of everything that is common or well-known, and it absolutely alters the perspective of the world around us. In 1520, such a letter was written, one that challenged the, one of the most powerful organizations that existed of corruption and of, of problems, inconsistencies with their teaching and, their, and their, their core belief system was being based on, on little or nothing. Well, that letter that I've described to you today is Luther. Uh, now, don't be confused, and sometimes this happens in church life when I talk about Martin Luther it's different than Martin Luther King or Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, so Martin Luther, the historical figure that lived in the 1500s, not the civil rights advocate that lived later, both notable in history, but I'm speaking of the first one. Okay. And when I speak of him, he writes a letter to Leo X, and he challenges everything that the church is doing. Now, if you don't know your part of history that deals with the Reformation, you won't understand that Luther had already challenged through a, a, a series of 95 different statements called a thesis, a 95 thesis, where he, he highlights all these inconsistencies that he points out. Well, this changes everything. The established church is being challenged, and as a result, what happens is the Protestant Reformation exists. Without such a thing, this type of church would not exist. You have to go all the way back over 500 years ago to see that certain letters have a dramatic impact on the world around us. This morning, we're going to look in your Bibles to another letter that was written that absolutely changes the course of everything. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. When you get to Acts, find chapter 1, and when you find verse number 1, if you would stand in honor of God's Word. Acts chapter 1, verse number 1 says this. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that as we come to Scripture, we are reminded that this letter, that it altered forever the course of mankind. I pray that we would be forever changed by the, by the empowering of your presence in our lives to be your witnesses, not just right here, but to the very ends of the map. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen.
Please be seated. You know, the interesting thing about Luther's letter when he writes it is he's not trying to make a new group. He wants to fix what's wrong. He wants to challenge their group into being in line with what the Bible taught. However, that becomes certainly impossible throughout the course of history. You see it, it unfolds, and, and Luther is well known as being the guy who, who challenged the system, and the system fought back, chased him all over the place, put him, him in peril to do so. Well, we, we learn about this bit of history, but then we look to the, to the Acts of the Apostles, a letter that was written sometime before then, actually, and we see something that is unfolding in front of us that gives us an account of the church. You see, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everybody say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the stories of Jesus. And then you get to the Acts, you get the picture of what happens to the followers of Jesus after that. And this is a beautiful thing that we have this dialogue because the letters that come later, those letters are important too, but the audience is a little more specific and digging into it is a little more heavy lifting, if you will. This is a general scope of everything that's happening in the church right after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And you see this unfold, and, he, and he, he, the author here, Luke, just starts in, and he says, and by the way, Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke, and he writes Acts, and verse for verse, he's one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament. He doesn't get credit in that regard because Paul writes so many letters. That being said, when he starts and he says the former account and he's talking about the gospel of Luke. It tells us something about the very first point I want you to, to hear me say this morning and that is that some stories unfold in more than one conversation and that's point number one in your bulletin. Some stories are so big that they're gonna happen over the course of two different talks, right? I mean, you ever get into somebody's life and they're like, I didn't even finish what I was trying to say to you because we got interrupted or because there wasn't enough time. There's more to this story. I love the fact that this happens because oftentimes in the Old Testament, the scrolls would become so lengthy that they would divide a, a text into two scrolls and we call them first and second and we think of them as two unique works, but they're really one story. This Luke and Acts are like this. There are two conversations, but they're really one story. And he begins to launch into this, and he's saying, there's more to this. Did you realize the word and connects a number of chapters and books and verses in the Bible that, that is a connective piece? And whenever I sit down with couples and they're getting ready to get married, one of the things I challenge them to do is to dig into the and. And they're like, what does that mean? Well, this means that in 10 years, when you've been married for some time, that you don't look back at each other and say, matters. It happens, by the way, right? Every once in a while, you look at somebody and say, I don't even know you. Who are you? This, I've been married to you for all these years. I didn't know that about you. But some things need to be disclosed before you get married so that later there's not a, a crisis in, in trust or a crisis in history that pops up. And so when we get the rest of the story, it makes a complete platform by which we can live. Luke is writing, and he, he gives a name here in the title of the sermon, O Theophilus. He says, O Theophilus. And the question rages in the minds of scholars about who this person is. Some would just suggest it's the believers. Some would suggest it's an individual. There is much debate and much ink has been spilled, and I'm not going to be able to sort that out for you this morning other than to say you can trust that this letter is for you too. 
Well, he gets to this part and he says, oh, Theophilus. And then he says, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he's talking, he says, I covered all this. This is everything that happened when I wrote to you before. And he starts to talk about the scope of what Jesus was doing. And then he goes on to say, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. And I love this word infallible. It's important that it weaves itself into the scriptures and that we see it here by no mistake. And when we talk about the fallibility or the infallibility of any document, we understand that the magnitude of this is, is, is something because when we look to God's word, we see it as God breathed and we see it as perfect in its intent and we understand that we can trust it. And because Jesus' works were infallible and the proofs of his resurrection were infallible and the record of it is infallible, we build our whole faith. Luther, when he writes his letter, he's looking at the church and, and the Pope, by the way, and he's saying, hey, it's broken. What we believe and what we say we believe, they're different. We shouldn't do that, should we? We should see what this book says and believe this and base everything we do on it. And when we stray from it, we should cry out and say, God, forgive us. Help us back to it because we will stray from it. But we see the whole magnitude of this is unfolding, right? Hey, he, he tees it all up and he says, I've talked about all these things. And Jesus' his resurrection, this proof, this infallible proof being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is one of the most challenging parts in all of Christendom the fact that Jesus comes back from the dead. We can believe in a teacher who is well-documented and we can believe in the death by somebody who is well-documented, but his resurrection sets us apart. If we don't inquire about his resurrection into our own lives, whether we believe it or not, we are not different than any other group with just a, a well-to-do martyr. But because we believe that he came back from the dead, we're something different. It sets us apart because it speaks to our future as well. You know, the grieves we wrestle with, the grief that is inside of us, the things that, that we are struggling with, we, we can look upon them as losses, and it's easy to do. You know, this, this very week, I, I look over my calendar, and I see the anniversary of a very, a very serious moment in my past, and it grieves me. But, but and more often, I, I begin to think that I would like to start celebrating the future of our reunion and the glory to come rather than the loss here. And I hope that you would join me in that, looking to the eternity, because we know that according to this scripture that Jesus was raised from the dead. And because we believe it and it is foundational to us, we embrace it, there is no reason. There is no reason for us not to run at the eternity in front of us with excitement of reunion. First and foremost with Christ. And then with our loved ones. That being said, we get into this picture where Jesus is described as having these infallible proofs. It says, being seen by them the 40 days. It gives us this time frame by which it's laid out. And he speaks to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I think this is absolutely fantastic, by the way. If you, if you are a student of the Gospels and a student of the Scriptures, then you see that it's interesting that Luke is by no means 
Hebrew and his intention of his authorship or his audience because he would not have said the kingdom of God. He would have said like Matthew does, the kingdom of heaven. But he speaks to the kingdom of God as being this actual thing. And he, he talks that Jesus was teaching about it. And he highlights that Jesus is pointing us to our citizenship, which belongs elsewhere. You know, I am, of all things, you know, you hear, you hear the Apostle Paul you know, he talks about his citizenship. He talks about all these things. But then he talks about being a bondservant of Christ. You know, just like him, I, in all things, I have citizenship to this nation. I have residency in this state of which we are absolutely proud to be Oklahoma. Amen? Um, you don't sound convinced. Don't believe what they say in Texas or Kansas about you. Be proud to be Oklahoman. Okay? Okay. And I'm also proud of my native heritage and all the different pieces that go along with that and my Anglo-Saxon heritage and all the pieces that go along with that. But you know what I'm more proud of? And it doesn't look like this anymore in the address, but route one, box one, right? Heaven, citizen of the glory to come. He talks about that Jesus is telling them about the kingdom of God. The people that he's addressing when he teaches are in a nation that is, that is in trouble. They politically are in trouble they are oppressed by other powerful leaders, that the world that they live in, that there is strife all around them, that there is war every year, there is trouble everywhere they go. But Jesus says there is a better home place, a kingdom that belongs to God that is not under siege, that is not in danger. These are the things that Jesus was teaching. And it's this marvelous picture of us. And we somehow lack the confidence of embracing it and moving forward. We kind of look like an audience that should receive a letter from somebody that says, you don't believe what this book says because you sure don't act like it. When Luther writes his letter, it would be almost as if maybe somebody should write a letter to us and say, hey, look at this book. Do you believe it? It's important. Man, and this is not really where I'm headed this morning, so that's all bonus. Verse 4. Speaking the matter by which the, the miraculous things of Acts unfold, it says, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. And there's this bold statement about Jesus. He said, okay, I'm going to go, and you guys are going to hang out in Jerusalem. You're going to be there for a little while, and the promise from the Father, which I have already talked to you about, is going to show up. And in this forever changes us. When the presence of God's Holy Spirit becomes the part of everyday life in a believer at Pentecost, it changes the narrative forever. Why? Because we have that indelible presence of God, irrevocable presence of God in our life that is leaning on us when we're doing the wrong thing or pushing us in the right direction or, or calling out to us to be invited to do greater works. But he says this four-letter word, wait. Unpopular, I know. If you don't believe me, don't camera, you know, or record yourself. Don't take a camera out and record yourself when you're standing in front of the microwave. If you, if, you, if you like the word wait, this is incompatible with you most of the time, right? I mean, the world is famous all of a sudden, you know. You, you, you look at the, the internet and you see these, you know, 
meticulously placed cameras that capture all of these things, these ridiculous things on camera. And you're like, man, it was convenient that, that camera just happened to be there when that thing happened that was supposed to be an accident. We're pretty good at recording things that are accidents on purpose. Just saying, don't believe everything you watch. But that being said, I just, I just challenge you. Throw up your, your smartphone and put the record button on, set it up so that it captures you, and then stand in front of the microwave and wait for the food. You will prove to yourself that you are not ready. Why? Because most of you will stop it before it hits the end of the cycle, won't you? And you'll test to see, maybe I can get at it now. And you're like, how long is it that three minutes should be too long for me to wait for a meal? Or six? But he says, wait. He says, wait. Point number two is that waiting is part of the faith life. If you don't believe me, then don't read the Bible. It's hard. It's hard to wait for things. You know, there's a story that is told of a, of a young family whose child goes to the carnival, and, and like most carnivals are good at, they're giving away prizes that are terribly irritating and annoying to the parents, right? I mean, no kid in this place ever came home with something that made a lot of noise. The parents were like, how can we break it? How can we hide it? How can we discard it? as soon as humanly possible. We'll let them have fun tonight, and it will disappear while they sleep. Well, this family that had gone to the carnival, they got a prize that did not have noise. They acquired four goldfish. So the dad runs off to the pet store, and he learns, gets a quick education, and that coquariums can be expensive. Somewhere between $40 and $70 is the average price for the aquarium of the size for gold, four goldfish. But he looks into the corner where somebody who had been displeased with the outcome of their purchase had returned an aquarium that had gravel and it had the fake. He thought, this has to be a deal. It's $5. He acquires it. He runs home. He thinks to himself, the manner of the hours of cleanup that it will take to rectify the, the filth that is in this aquarium will be well worth the savings. So he sets to cleaning it. Man, those goldfish look good in that aquarium. All four of them. Within a few hours, the first one belly up. Hey, one fish, though. We still have three. They go to bed. The next night they come back. Second goldfish, belly up. About the time the third one goes belly up, he inquires to some friends about what might have gone wrong. And they said, well, how did you clean, clean the aquarium? He says, soap and water. And they said, oh, no. You have poisoned your fish. You have in haste to clean your aquarium, have, have instead of being patient and waiting to do it properly, you have killed your fish. And I wonder about us that we are in such a hurry to clean up our lives and the messes around us that we are not applying the wrong thing by which would clean our lives. Instead, we, we, we use things that are abrasive and harsh, and as a result, we, we do more harm to ourselves than that which the Scripture would give to us, which is absolutely cleansing. We, we are not fans of waiting. But that's exactly what he told the church. He said, wait for the promise. And then he tells them what that promise is. You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
you know, the word baptized, and we, we look at this and we talk about it, and then one of the distinctives oftentimes that gets mentioned in, in Baptist life is that when we baptize, we immerse completely, meaning we get completely submerged in it, right? You know, it's not sprinkling, and it's not, it's not something else. It's, it's fully under the water. You know, when I tell people that are getting ready to get baptized, one of the things I tell them, I say, I'm going to take you all the way under, so if you resist, I'm going to work at it. Most of the time, they submit. I have been asked many times to hold somebody under a few extra seconds just to make sure. But I know just getting them under, it's a symbol of the picture here. But the picture that he talked about, the Holy Spirit, is not just having it in your wallet, in your back pocket, but having it completely immersed in it. You are in it. It is not in you. And this is a picture of us in the God life. We become part of God's family. He doesn't become part of ours. And that's the kingdom building that we're talking about. You step away in some small way from, from your earthly family into this heavenly family, pleading with your earthly family to be part of this heavenly family. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But you see this picture. He, he tells them that if they wait, that this goodness of God, this promise will be delivered to them. In verse 6 it says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And this is a, this is a question that, that was actually, in my estimation, one that is resonating from the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. Will you do the thing here on earth and straighten all this mess out, you know? And, and that's something that we really want, isn't it? We want God to straighten this mess out, don't we? I mean... Maybe you don't want that. I would love it if God would straighten this mess out, wouldn't you? You don't sound convinced, church. God needs to straighten this mess out. That's our thinking all the time, right? This is the number one question that pops up every time an awful thing happens. Where's God in the midst of this problem? Why doesn't he stop these things from happening? And you know, if you were at the evangelistic rally, you would have heard my full thoughts on the matter concerning, concerning the scriptures where it says that he knows that if he judges the wicked things right now, that he'll destroy also the righteous, so he's waiting. And that's a sermon for another day, but I will tell you the truth on the matter. We all want to answer to this question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? We want to know, don't we? Why? Because we think of ourselves as more important than we are. We truly do. It, it, it's not meant to be insulting, but if you're insulted, it's okay because it's true. The problem is, is that Jesus is going to back them up and he's going to give them a task or a responsibility and he's going to say, you are outside of your lane. He does it gently though because Jesus is good at that. My wife and my family and, and, and those that work with me here at the church will tell you that sometimes I'm blunt and can be sometimes just a, steam, just a steamroller just flattening everything out in front of me. And I, it is not meant to be insulting, but I know that sometimes it is. But the picture here is, is that Jesus is going to lean in and he's going to say it real, real, just real easy. It is not for you to know times or season which the Father has put in his own authority. He's like, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, what am I getting ready to do for you? The question is, is what do you want us to do for you? 
And this is a problem we have. We're looking to the heavens and we're thinking that what God has already done isn't enough and we're saying, God, save us and fix the problems. When God is like, no, I came to save you. That is my objective. And then we look out and we say, okay, so what else are you gonna do? And he's like, no, 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 no. You're not asking me what I'm gonna do. I'm telling you what you're supposed to be doing. And Jesus is real smooth. He just, like silk, just rolls it out there. He's like, it's not for you to know this information about the authority. He says, however, but you shall receive power. And he begins to line out. He says, focus on this piece. Do this thing. You know, the part of the thing that globally oftentimes what happens, even in an organization or a church, is we look around and oftentimes we're looking at the big picture and maybe we don't like some of the things about the organization and we get caught up in the big picture stuff and we're forgetting all the while that the small and minute tasks that are in front of us that should be being handled. And if we would do those things well, it would fortify the, the whole structure. The organization would be stronger from the ground up. But instead we're looking at the big thing and we're saying to ourselves, well, this is broken and this is broken and this is broken all the while neglecting the small things that we could have an immediate impact on. And Jesus is leaning in to tell the apostles who had been taught by him about this kingdom of God, and he's like, it's not for you to have the answer to the question you want to ask. He says, but you, and here's where it gets real interesting. And we talk about this verse a lot, but oftentimes we forget all the things before it and after it. We're good about that, by the way, picking one verse and isolating it out and not talking about the context. He goes on to say, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That Holy Spirit that was just promised, remember, that John had talked about, you're going to get that. It's going to be part of your life. You're going to be part of it, immersed in it. And then he says, and you shall be witnesses to me. And there's lots of cool language in the scriptures that talk about witnesses and stuff that's really important. And I, I don't want to get too academic for you here, but, you know, you've heard the passage on salt and light, and I'm sure I'll share this with you at some point when I get that, and I'll dissect it fully. But oftentimes people misinterpret that passage so badly that it's insulting. The salt was oftentimes exchanged. There's beautiful examples in the Old Testament a couple different times where when somebody was going to make a deal with somebody, and if you write a contract or you make a deal with somebody, you, you know, we shake hands, but we also sign documents. We tie our life history and all of our, all of our important banking information, we tie all this to our, our decision, don't we? And then we exchange papers. Well, they didn't have all that. So what they would do is they would trade a measure of salt. They would make a deal and somebody would take some salt and give it to the other party and it would be the binding part of the agreement. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, what he's saying is, you are the testimony to the contract. You are the witness that bears evidence that something has been done. Something has been promised. Something is being done. And something will be executed. That the measure of the whole thing will be delivered. This is the picture. And he says, you will be my witnesses. And he's like, you will be the, the thing that when this is in question, you will stand up and tell the story. No, I am the example of why this is still true and why it is still happening. And you become very important to this task. He goes on to say, if you look at it in Matthew, when you see the picture right there in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you lose your saltiness, might as well throw you out. It feels different, doesn't it, when you understand the context? When you see this picture, and he's like, well, you're going to be my witnesses. 
You're going to tell the world what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. You're going to take from my teaching and bear witness to me, and you're going to do it right here. And you're going to do it right out there past here. And you're going to do it right out past there, too. Hey, by the way, you're going to do it all the way to the end of the map. I use this expression a lot when I talk about this. That's the way Apostle Paul talks about when he's trying to get to the end of the world. It's literally to the end of the known world. And so I like to say the end of the map. Well, we have a pretty good map of the world, right? At least we think we do. I'm not going to debate with you whether it's flat or not. Maybe I will, but not today. This gospel, this thing that's in us, is supposed to be declared, broadcast. We stand to tell the world. This letter that was delivered to Theophilus is a story that tells us how the world is going to be changed. I, I want you to see it, and, and you begin to understand that the picture here for us, and, and points three and four come really close together. Uh, when he says that the Holy Spirit is going to come to them, we understand that the picture is, is that they, they are his plan. The disciples were Jesus' plan. Do you believe that you're God's plan? If you do not believe that you are God's plan, then you are missing it. You understand that when God looks down from heaven and he sees those of us that believe in him, we are part of his intricate plan to declare to the world him, his promise, his action, and the future to come are all part of our story, right? That's you, that's me, that's us. So I want you to look around the room, just take a moment, and this is going to be a real eye-opening moment for you. No, really, I mean, actually, the neck has to do this, okay, I can't, okay. Look around. You are his plan. You are the people that are supposed to be declaring the truth in begs. Omogi County, Oklahoma, the United States, internationally. You are his plan. Just as the disciples were his plan. If that doesn't excite you, I don't know what will. It probably scares some of you a little bit, right? Because there's somebody in this room, I guarantee, that when we said, hey, we're signing people up to go to Honduras, some of you felt like God maybe was leaning in, and you're like, oh, that's not for me. But God was leaning in, and you said, no, thanks. You're neglecting the part that you're supposed to be his witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth. If you can't, you know, get on board, you know, you might get upset. But the reality here is, is that we're supposed to be doing it. All manner of opportunities around us. There's going to be opportunities to serve at Kids Camp and Falls Creek. And at the local trash, trash pickup day here, it begs just, just, just a, shoe for, a few short minutes. I said that backwards. A few short minutes from now. We're going to go on the 6th and we're going to clean up begs. Declaring God's love as we do it. Part of the testimony. His witnesses. The gospel is our responsibility. The good news. We see it. You see, point number four is the mission starts here, but goes all the way to the ends of the earth. All the way to the ends of the earth. But you can't get to the end of the earth without taking one step out your front door, can you? Last time I checked, they had not yet created the science fantasy of teleportation. Until they do, the ends of the earth starts with one foot in front of the other out your front door. 
mean, Tolkien captured that well when he talks in The Hobbit, you know, this is how the journey begins. It's dangerous to walk out your front door, isn't it? I know I'm paraphrasing now. But you see the picture? I want to talk to you this morning about one other letter. These are, you know, I've talked to you about the letter here in Acts, and I've talked to you about the letter from Luther, but there's a reply to a man by the name of Horace Greeley. I don't know if you're familiar with who Horace Greeley is, but Horace Greeley wrote a scathing criticism of Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the Civil War. Scathing. Criticizing him about his stance on the abolition of slavery and his aggressive nature that he should be pursuing in the matter. And, and Lincoln receives the thing and responds, which is phenomenal, by the way, that the President of the United States would have time to respond to such a letter. In that letter, in his response, he highlights that he feels like it's completely immoral, that, that slavery is immoral. He, he objects to slavery. But he says, but you have to understand that my objective, when he writes to Horace Greeley, he says, my objective is to protect this union. That is the chief objective of what we're trying to accomplish with this war. And I'm not going to let anything get in the way of that. He says, some of these things will change over time for certain. He says, but that is the key thing. We know that the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, and we know that the, the abolition of slavery is, is something that we celebrate as a nation. We understand that our history is bumpy when it comes to these kinds of things, and there's embarrassment and shame, you know, when you look back over the course of what Americans did to people, but we understand that we're not perfect. But it's amazing to me that when he responds, he, he crystallizes the whole story. He says, let's keep the main thing the main thing. The same way Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, you are worried about the wrong things. Worry about what you're supposed to be accomplishing right now. Do that task well. There's a picture for us, each one of us, to look at a letter like the book of Acts and see the example of what was done. There are folly, mistakes. There is all manner of, of dispute and disagreement in the Bible about how things are executed. But the truth is this. We're going to make mistakes too. But if we will keep the main objective, our, our right centerpiece, then there's not anything that God can't accomplish or won't accomplish through us. You are his plan. You are essential to his working. And it's exciting to be invited. It's exciting to be part. You're not insignificant in this moment. And it starts right here, right now. At the moment of, of invitation, we, we come to this place where if you feel like you're not part of this plan because you don't yet know Jesus, then the opportunity today is presented to you to come and be part of the plan. Accept his invitation and know him as Savior. Be invited into this work. Receive his Holy Spirit. Be immersed in it. Become part of his family. I've talked about it throughout the sermon today, being part of this family. You're not forsaking your earthly one so much as you're gaining your heavenly one. But make no mistake, you are indeed gaining a heavenly one, and it is superior to your earthly one. If you haven't done that today, then I challenge you to do that, to come and speak with me or one of the deacons that will be available. We, we will absolutely discuss with you the measure of knowing Christ as your Savior. But if you already know him, and maybe there's some bit of conviction in you that you haven't been doing your part to be a witness in begs, and in the county, and in the state, and beyond. 
And maybe you want to talk to him about that this morning. Maybe you want to come and ask one of us to pray for you. Maybe you want to just come and spend some time. But today we face our creator and we have to reconcile that maybe we're asking the wrong questions about what he's not doing. And instead, cry out to him, Lord, I don't need to know what you're doing. I just need to know what you want me to do. And then say yes to that. Would you stay? Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to look to the scriptures to be reminded of the glorious nature of your commission. I pray that we would keep the main thing the main thing, that we would invest our heart and just being solely committed to what would you have us do. We know your will is perfect. We know your plan is great. We don't need to know all the details. We just need to know what you need from us. Help us, Lord, to be your witnesses. Lord, I pray that you'll help us by starting to be a right witness with you by knowing you personally. I ask for these that are present. Lord, these that will watch online, Lord, that if any of them need you as Savior, that they'll make that right today and become part of this family. We ask for courage in this moment. We ask for bravery to do what you've asked. For this in Jesus' name, amen.